In the 1980s, the Southern Baptist Convention found itself at a crossroads. While many of its churches were faithfully teaching biblical Christianity, the seminaries where its pastors were trained had been immersed in theological liberalism for decades. In a lot of stories, this is where the split would occur. But this time, something different happened. Instead of dividing, a group of courageous Christians decided to change the equation. They came up with an unprecedented plan to turn Southern Seminary from liberal theology back to its confessional roots. Politics, technology, identity, power, science, everything seems to be changing. So why not faith? This is Christianity and Liberalism, a podcast based on the book by J. Gresham Machen. In this show, we'll be discussing a modern-day church in crisis and engaging with Machen's classic text to see what lessons we can learn and apply 100 years later. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's manned upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrist is still the only answer for man's wickedness. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's manned upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. CNL, with Machen, we will tell, faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell. J. Gresson Machen's Christianity and Liberalism story didn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, his battle was just a small part of nationwide ideological warfare that went far beyond Princeton and the Presbyteries of New Jersey. It was known as the Fundamentalist Controversy. And although Machen didn't consider himself to be a fundamentalist, he was happy to have allies in his defense of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. To the south of Machen, the Southern Baptist Convention wasn't immune to the influence of modernist theology, and for decades after the fundamentalist controversy, liberal professors made inroads at the flagship school, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, sowing seeds of doubt and confusion among a generation of pastors and leaders. By the 1980s, faithful Baptists had had enough. A conservative resurgence took shape, and in 1993, a new president, Albert Muller, was appointed with a task that at one point seemed impossible, returning Southern Seminary to its confessional roots. 30 years later, my guest today, Al Muller, is still the president of Southern Seminary and has earned a reputation as a staunch defender of biblical confessional Christianity. But this wasn't a defense Dr. Muller had to invent from scratch. I thought I'd begin just by asking about your exposure to Christianity and liberalism. Uh, When did you first discover Machen's Christianity and liberalism, and how has it shaped your thinking, and how has it influenced you as a theologian and a leader? Well, that is the uh, the gold standard question right there. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that at this point in my life, in a seventh decade of life, I can't go back into, this is exactly where I first heard this name, uh, in every case. In the case of Machen, I can tell you where and roughly when I first heard his name, and it was spoken of with great respect 
in the context of conversations I was having with people as a teenager, for instance, uh, G- uh, Jim Kennedy, Dr. D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, uh, who introduced me to uh, Francis Schaefer and so many others. And Machen's one of those names that was uh, that was a part of the mix, but I, I really didn't know anything beyond that. I was, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. The, the next uh, encounter I had with Machen was in a polemical context in which uh, Machen was just dismissed as a fundamentalist. And, and what had shifted at that point that is that I was at a seminary being taught by basically theological liberals at the time. And so they kept pointing back to the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And, you know, it was kind of a good thing the fundamentalist lost was the clear implication. And and yet there, there, there was Machen again. And uh, Christianity and Liberalism as a book was clearly identified. And uh, at some point shortly thereafter, I read the book and uh, came to a a very different understanding of Machen. The book was catalytic for me. It was uh, category shifting for me. And uh, it took me a while, actually, as a very young person, uh, uh, you know, say 20 years old, to come to terms with what Machen was actually arguing. When even in the title of the book, he made clear that it's not two different variants of Christianity. It's Christianity and a new religion. This modernism is a new religion, a a different religion. That logic uh, basically has shaped my understanding of the contemporary theological challenge from that moment onward, with immediate application to just about every arena of, uh, of Christianity uh, that uh, has been my concern, most importantly, as a, a leader in a denomination and as president of a theological seminary. Mm-hmm. So so what do you think has given this book such broad appeal for a hundred years? Yeah, for everything from Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans, and more? Well, I do think it is an intellectual tool that Machen gave us that clarifies tremendously where we stand. And I I think it remains that way. It's like a watershed where you say on this side, you have one thing. On the other side, you have another thing. It's not a variant of thing one. It's now thing two. That sounds like Dr. Seuss, not Dr. Machen. But nonetheless, uh, the point is, is this is a watershed. You're on one side of it. You're on the other side of it. And uh and in what Machen did on the on the side of Christianity, uh, as in the title Christianity and Liberalism, on the Christianity side, he pointed to the non-negotiable doctrines that are essential to Christianity. And that, again, was an enormous help uh, because it was a far more uh, stable list than, for instance, many of the uh, other fundamentalists had tried to offer. In Christianity and Liberalism, Machen addresses his plea for confessional orthodoxy in six areas. Doctrine, God and man, the Bible, Christ, salvation, and the church. Are there, are there ways that you see his work as particularly relevant in these areas for the church today? Well, first of all, I'm thankful for the list. And I think this is a part of what set Machen apart from... Um, a lot of the other fundamentalists of, of the day. The day. And, I, and you know, I'm using the word fundamentalist just in the historical context. Their enemies called them that. But, uh, you know, uh, Machen was kind of the odd man out in a lot of those lists because so many of them held to a theological paradigm very different than his. They, they, they were not confessional Protestants the way that, that Machen was. And I think that's one of the reasons why, if you look at the, the fundamentalist definition 
it was theologically anachronistic. It was or eccentric. Machen's list is not eccentric; it's historical. So one of the wonderful things about that that list of of uh, doctrine, God, and man, Bible, Christ, salvation, the church is that those have been central to the life and health and definition of the church throughout two thousand years. And I think this is where being a self-conscious son of the Reformation, Machen understood, because there's a reason why we just have to keep going back to the 16th century, is because the crystallization of those issues at the time of the magisterial reformers, it gives us the grounding to say, okay, if they're going to justify breaking with the Church of Rome, they're going to justify it on theological grounds. Well, what are those theological grounds? And they were not eccentric doctrines. They were central doctrines. And I think that's where Machen helps. Uh, and I think at, at the time, by the way, uh, in his confrontation with people like Harry Emerson Fosdick, it was just really helpful that Machen said, okay, well, before we try to figure out a typology here, let's just ask the question, where is Dr. Fosdick on? God, the Bible, Christ, salvation, the church. He didn't say that was the you know extent of all of his concerns, but he knew what the heart of the matter was. Now, if you were in conversation with the liberal and you wanted them to read one of these chapters, which one do you think would be number one on your list? That is an extremely irritating question. <laughs> uh, and and I, I guess it would depend partly on the conversation. I don't mean to be evasive. But, I mean, I think... I think at the end of the day, there is a. I would have. I would, I'm going to cheat and say two, and I would say that they are the chapters on doctrine and on the Bible, uh, because one is kind of, uh, uh, you might say, principles of thinking or epistemological, and the other is authority and substance, and uh, I think those are the two crucial issues. And I, I, if I had to have one, I'd have to say the Bible, the Sola Scriptura. You know, if I have one chapter, because that 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 basically is is everything rightly understood. But I think the very nature of doctrine is what has changed in the modern mind, and Machen knew it, and so he wanted to make very clear in that chapter that what we're talking about are absolute propositional truth claims, space, time, and history, um, not just religious emotions. In the early 1990s, when Al Mohler was elected president of Southern, he had what many thought was an impossible task ahead of him. Steering an academic institution from liberal theology to its confessional roots wasn't just difficult, it was unprecedented in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. But Mohler wasn't flying blind. He already had a map drawn out by J. Gresham Machen in Christianity and Liberalism. You are the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, but the seminary has had a very long and turbulent history, a really joyful one as well. But many years ago, there was a theological shift at, a Southern, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary from a confessional adherence to a liberal theology that in a lot of ways mirrored Machen's defining conflict in the PCUSA and at Princeton in the 1920s. When you were elected president of Southern Seminary, were you aware of Machen and his book, Christianity and Liberalism? And did that book or his story have any impact on the way that you would go about reshaping Southern Seminary? 
Yes. My entire adult life, basically, I've known of Christianity and liberalism. So uh, I was I was like 20 years old, something like that, uh, when as a seminary student, I was exposed to it. As I said, it, it really shifted the categories of my thought. So long before I came to Southern Seminary as president, and by the way, that's 30 years ago right now, basically. I, I'm just ending 30 years of service in this role. Um, the uh, the framework that Machen offered was was the architecture of my mind, frankly. Now, there were other things also in that architecture, but the point is that Machen's distinction between Orthodox Christianity, and by the way, I'd, I'd done doctoral work in systematic and historical theology, so I'm looking for continuities and discontinuities. Uh, that's exactly what Machen knows he's doing in this book, which is why he has to deal with some rather awkward questions uh, like who is on the side of Christianity? And I think Machen there is a little more generous than he wants to be because he just is arguing for the doctrinal continuity. And so, you know, at one point he puts at least the historic Catholic Church, uh, you know, on the side of at least being able to claim a Christian identity that the modernists, the theological liberals have no claim upon. And so, you know, that framework was, was just very essential to my thinking. But beyond that, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is uh, a, a genetic child of old Princeton. And so uh, this institution was born in 1859. Half of the faculty came out of Princeton uh, in terms of their theological education. They had been sent to Princeton uh, precisely because of the uh, of the Baptist orthodoxy of the time. They brought Princeton's foundational documents, the fundamental laws, even the creedal subscription directly. So, in other words, you, you take the Samuel Miller book on the use and utility of creeds and confessions. That very language is the language of the contract for employment uh, for faculty at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. All that to say uh, that the history of this institution is just like a 50-year delayed fuse on what took place in the northern denominations and eventually affected Princeton as well, which led to Majin, which led to Westminster Theological Seminary. And so uh, the institution lost its way. And so you could say that the, the institution I lead had a history much like Princeton, born in absolute, unquestionable, contractual confessional orthodoxy, only to wander from that. The difference is that Southern Baptists were able to regain control of this institution, and uh, I was hired to bring it back to its confessional identity. And uh, that's what I spent 30 years doing. Now, now, by the time you arrived 30 years ago, liberal influence at Southern had been entrenched for decades. What did that look like? What, what were the hallmarks of liberalism at a place like Southern Seminary? You know, I can have a conversation with you uh, because you and I know what we're talking about when I say theological liberalism. I mean, actual doctrinal liberalism. I think some people hear that, some evangelicals, and they hear, well, that means someone who's to the left of you. No, I mean someone to the left of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, I had a professor, because remember, I did my theological education here. Uh, thankfully, there was more also to my theological education. But, uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was educated here. And so I, I confronted the very first hour I was in a seminary classroom, a professor who was non-Trinitarian. Uh, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, would defy the imagination. Mm -hmm. of, uh, of of most, you know, evangelicals, but it was true. And so the denial of the virgin birth, and sometimes it wasn't just an outright denial. And, and by the way, Machen deals with this in his book on the virgin birth very clearly. 
uh, there's a difference between uh, a kind of an honest denial and a dishonest denial, where you say something like the virgin birth is not necessary. Uh, Machen nails that, of course, in, in that other volume. But uh, yeah, I, I confronted this all the time. The, the biblical text is just constantly under suspicion. The miraculous is uh, is probably you know heightened uh, high heightened uh, supernaturalism. Uh, it, it, it's the same thing that you would have encountered just about everywhere else. Now, what tempered things here is the church culture of the Southern Baptist Convention, which meant that the churches were far more conservative. Thanks be to God, and and so. The seminaries had to kind of run under the radar in terms of the liberalism. And uh, so, just to be honest, I'm going beyond your question. It was really kind of a form of Baptist Gnosticism, Mm -hmm. in which you had kind of a Gnostic class where people knew, you know, we can talk about Isaiah as if there's one Isaiah. Really, we think there were two, three, four Isaiahs. Um, And and so, it was in the midst of that. And, And eventually, Southern Baptists saw what was going on and rose up and... You know, exactly what didn't happen in the northern denominations in terms of conservatives gaining control and making it matter, it did happen in the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned Dr. D. James Kennedy. Uh, James Kennedy, I had preach in chapel here, enormous in- influence on my life, and, uh, and and in the life of my wife, by the way, who was the valedictorian of uh, the high school there, uh, Westminster Academy, and uh, direct, uh, you know, uh, the influence of Dr. Kennedy in her life as well. So we had Dr. Kennedy here. We have him in chapel. The chapel's packed. By now, it's a conservative recovery. Students filled with, the chapel's filled with conservative students. And I mean filled, like, you know, 1,100. And uh, we were singing, And Can It Be? And Dr. Kennedy just turned to me and, and grabbed my lapels and said, You got your Princeton back. It was one of the most, uh, actually, uh, 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 gracious moments that I've spent in 30 years here, because there is a sense in which, by God's grace, we got our Princeton back. We've mentioned the pervasiveness of the condition of low visibility that liberal theology tends to operate in, and Southern Seminary was no exception. I asked Dow how he dealt with that during the early days of the conservative resurgence at Southern. This all relates to something that Machen talks about in his book, uh, in the uh, in Christianity and Liberalism, Mesa talks about how liberals like to fight their intellectual battles in a condition of low visibility, using familiar terms, but fudging their original meaning. Uh, in your experience, uh, what's the best way to combat that? How did you combat that? Because I believe faculty members and professors can be pretty sly with their theological positions at times. Well, number one, you need a theologian as president. Yes, I mean, uh, the, you, you need a confessionalist, a creedalist as president. You need you need someone who um, who who presses the questions, such as, you know, like I say, the the creedal conformity, the confessional conformity, is the issue. Uh, and again, Southern Seminary's language is not unique; it's drawn directly from Princeton, old Princeton. Every professor must teach. Uh, in accordance with and not contrary to all that is contained within the confession of faith, without reservation uh, or uh, or mental hesitation or, or or reservation, without any private arrangement with the one who invests him in office. Uh, you know, the language is just really clear, without evasion, no mental hesitation. You know, that, that language, by the way, uh, Princeton got from the Spanish Inquisition, which is another strange tale in confessional history. 
Yeah, but uh, in the Spanish Inquisition, just to bring that clear, in the Spanish yeah. Inquisition, some of the heretics tried to claim that they were neither in position one or position two, but they were kind of like an atom, you know, between two force fields. They were hesitating between two opinions. Hesitation. They they declared a right of hesitation. The uh, Princetonians said absolutely no to a right of hesitation. I was able to to use that language. It's already in the contract. You know, when I arrived here, every faculty member had signed the contract with all the right words in it. I just made the words count. And uh, I got up in chapel in 1993, 30 years ago, and just said, if you hold to these truths without, you know, reservation or without any kind of hesitation, if you hold to these words in terms of the plain meaning of the words, the meaning of the sentences, uh, then you may stay. Uh, otherwise, your own contract says you're not to be teaching here. Yeah, I mean, easier said than done, too. I think you probably went through a lot of suffering um, just throughout those 30 years, especially early on in the beginning. What was that it was like? a very lonely job, I can tell you that. Yeah, I could imagine that. Um, over time, I'm sure, the student body grew and became far more confessional and orthodox in their thinking, but that must have been a really dark time. It, it was. And, uh, you know, in, in every one of these denominations in which you've had these battles, there have been some very hard times. People pay a very high cost. Machen himself, uh, in his person, uh, I, I think, even in his health, mm -hmm. uh, he paid such an enormous cost. And, um, you know, the, 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 the reality is that nothing's going to come easy. I think of, you know, Luther, Calvin, uh, you know, the, the, the church fathers, uh, there is suffering for the faith. Um, and, and, and you mentioned something a little bit earlier, you know, about the fact that a lot of this just isn't, just isn't understandable to some people because a lot of the liberals use language that sounds almost orthodox. And so even at times, you know, people in the pew who were as conservative as could be were confused as to whether, you know, the liberals were as liberal as I said they were. They eventually made that point, by the way. Uh, they became the verification of my own charges against them. And uh, the uh, the folks, you know, a lot of them who were here and elsewhere uh, in the SBC and left accused of liberalism, I mean, they're they're flying the rainbow flag now as if a literal fulfillment of uh, of what we had warned. Uh, now, you mentioned how a president needs to be a creedalist or a confessionalist. Now, Southern was founded on the confessional basis that uh, you steered the seminary back to. Why is it so important for churches and seminaries to have confessional standards? Because otherwise you don't have any. Uh, you know, the, the, this is one of the, the hard lessons of Christianity, and I think it, it, it's found within the apostolic era, it's found in the New Testament, uh, where we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. How do we know what that is? Well, there are propositional statements in Scripture. Creeds and confessions, rightly understood, are nothing more than a summary of the doctrinal propositions of Scripture itself. And, uh, you know, back in the old, uh, you know, debate between the liberals and the conservatives and the SBC, the liberals used to say, you know, I don't believe in any creed. I'll just, you know, sign the Bible. Well, you know, the devil can sign the Bible in one sense. <laughs> that, because what that is is an evasion of sentences. And that's why, you know, I, I, I just appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, the reformers, for instance, understood that the faith comes down to 
sentences. You know, one of the earliest and most important of the doctrinal battles in Christianity, think of the Nicene conflict and the the need for the Council of Nicaea and the Creed of Nicaea. It wasn't at that point even over a document. It wasn't over a sentence. It was not even over just, you might say, a word. It was over a syllable, whether, you know, homoousios or homoousios uh, rightly describes uh, the the son and uh, you know honestly orthodoxy was hanging on a diphthong creeds include the diphthongs you know we 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 get it right and uh, that's what we require hmm. now I could imagine a listener saying no creed but the Bible how would you respond to someone who thinks that way good luck. Uh, you know, with your church, uh, you know, that was the Campbellite creed, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Alexander Campbell, another saying, you know, no creed, but the Bible. Um, and, and the problem with that is that the Bible is not a summary that can be easily used to just as a whole, you know, Genesis to Revelation, 66 books. That is not a way of being able to go into a meeting and say, I th- believe this man rightly understands the relationship between the Father and the Son, rightly understands the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we have to base all of our arguments on Scripture. The, the, the Scripture has the sole authority, sola scriptura. But, you know, Luther and Calvin and others, you know, just almost get immediately understood that the only way to defend the Reformation is to define its doctrines and creeds and confessions, put it down into sentences. The Christian faith stands and falls on sentences. And the Creed and Confession is nothing more than a selection of the most necessary sentences uh, for church members or for members of a theology faculty uh, to affirm. And, and not only to affirm that, hey, yeah, those are sentences, and not just to affirm, yeah, I know that's what the institution says, but to affirm this is what I personally believe. When Christian institutions experience missional drift like Southern Seminary did in the latter half of the 20th century, their leaders are faced with difficult dilemmas. What if we can't course correct? What if it's too late? Often millions of dollars and hundreds of livelihoods are at stake. Not to mention the invisible influence these parachurch organizations have on individual Christians' faith. So what is a godly leader to do? Now, your story at Southern is very unique in that there's very little precedent for liberal institutions returning to confessionalism. So what motivated you and others at that time to enact a program of reform instead of branching off and doing your own thing? You know, uh, first of all, there were were some assets in the polity of the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the assets is, is that the convention does elect the trustees of the institutions. So if you can elect presidents of the SBC who will follow through and appoint committees to appoint trustees that will hold to orthodoxy, you'll have orthodoxy. And uh, so this meant that that Baptists had a mechanism at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention where churches could send messengers who could show up and vote. And uh, so it, it really was a way of neutralizing over time, a denominational elite that was more liberal. The elite got outvoted. And, you know, in almost every situation, an elite can get outvoted if the people figure out how to outvote the elite. Yeah, that that relates to this next question. Um, In the SBC, there was a a movement or a moment when the conservative resurgence almost compromised in order to keep what progress they've already made. 
Is there room for compromise in the fight between Christianity and liberalism? And what are the potential dangers of compromising? And what does it look like? Well, you know, I have to be careful in a fallen world, sometimes, you know, some kind of compromise uh, is, uh, is just a holding pattern. I just want to warn conservatives and the Orthodox that that holding pattern is at our expense. In other words, untruth can't be tolerated it, 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 or, or in principle we fail. And so, you know, I have to be careful because conservatives don't always have a majority in a meeting. And sometimes, you know, in a polity, you come up with the best you can do, but you have to be willing to say, okay, here's the bottom line. Um, and And I think compromise in theory and in practice is actually a way of just losing more slowly. And I didn't come here to lose slowly. I didn't come here to delay disaster. I came here to avert disaster. And uh, so compromise just doesn't really work. I mean, if for one thing, creedily, what in the world does that mean? You, you say, well, you got to hold the doctrine of the Trinity. But when it comes to, uh, you, you know, uh, the, the person and work of Christ, you know, we'll, we'll be a little more generous. You, you can't do that. No, that's exactly right. So what what forms of compromise do you see today in the church or even in just average Christians dealing with political issues of the day? Uh, what sorts of compromises should people be aware of that they actually might think, this, I'm not compromising at all? Yeah, I think silence is the biggest compromise. I, I think the mood of non-confrontationism uh, or confrontationism uh, on the part of uh, so many is uh, is the form of compromise that's the that's the most seductive right now. Hmm. And, and you see this in people who say, "Look, I I just don't think we need to fight over that. Let, let's stand over here where we can be unified." The problem is that ground of where you can supposedly be unified. It's a, that's a shrinking piece of land, and um, I, I I just I just think that for one thing, you know, we're dealing with more subtle issues. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s, the theological shakeout, not just in the SBC, but elsewhere uh, uh, during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, it really led to the fact that uh, a, a lot of the liberals left or, or, or took over and just the conservatives left, such that you had kind of the, you know, the uh, of, of what conservatives some evangelical, some orthodox thought was a bit of breathing room for a while, and uh, I, I was very, I was, I was very concerned about that, and remain even more concerned because I don't think that that we have that kind of comfort and security, uh, because I think uh, the failure to contend for confessional truth is is it, it's going to be fatal. The question is whether. It's a long fatal illness or a short fatal crisis, but uh, failure to give attention to these things. I think that's one of the things Machen understood, and uh, and you know he was willing to go for broke. Machen could have had a very happy life just accommodating himself at Princeton. Um, he didn't do that, and I, I I don't think it's because he uh, he thought it would be you know particularly cool to start a new school. I, I think it was because he recognized. The only options at Princeton that were left to him were to lose fast or to lose slowly. And I respect the fact he was unwilling to do either. 
I think I think there are those in evangelicalism right now who think victory is losing more slowly. Your stand for historic Christianity required you to enter into disagreement, controversy, and conflict with others who claimed the name of Christ. So in a situation where serious truths are on the line, how can Christians demonstrate Christ-likeness in the way that they fight their battles? Well, that is hard because battles by definition require conflict, and conflict produces uh, occasion for all kinds of hurt. I, I think one of the most important things we can do is be constant in making clear what the theological issues are on which there can be no compromise. And at the same time, making very clear this is not a personal agenda. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints that is required of us in order that our children and grandchildren will even know what Christianity is. And I tell people, look, here, here's the difference. And, and, and this is a key conservative insight. This is something Edmund Burke would clearly understand. Um, people want to think of, of respect only in terms of people in the room. You know, you've got people on the more liberal side, people who are more confused in the middle, you've got people on the right. And people say respect means, you know, you respect everyone in that room. Well, I'm not disregarding respect. I'm simply saying, I think the key conservative insight, which is deeply biblical, is we need to have respect for the people who aren't yet in the room, our own children, our own grandchildren, their children. That's the perspective of God's covenant people, of uh, the, whether it's Israel or the church. We understand that our concern for the truth and our concern for respect is not limited to the people who might be in the room with us at the time. Hmm. Well, that's really helpful. The influence of liberal theology and progressive ideology didn't end with Machen in the 1920s or at Southern in the 1990s. Although bastions of biblical fidelity have endured, the drift in American culture and even church culture away from traditional Christianity has continued to accelerate. These trends are something Dr. Muller has had his eye on for years, and which he now addresses on his podcast, The Briefing. So you host a podcast, The Briefing, in which you address contemporary issues facing Christians. Can you name a handful for us that are especially relevant in the conflict between confessional Christianity and liberal drift? Yeah, well, you know, the culture around us uh, has shifted so much in a relatively brief period of time. One of the things I, I try to help Christians to understand are some basic social categories. One of them is social acceleration or social velocity. So, you know, it used to be that it took a long time for society to shift on anything. We're in a situation right now in which we have so many multiple levels operating it to the left uh, in, in a progressivist way, and I mean that ideologically, uh, and, and each on its own timetable. And so I, I want Christians to understand that um, our challenge is not just a bunch of isolated issues. It's, it's the entirety of a culture that is growing in antipathy to the civilizational commitments that gave it birth, and that would include historic Christianity. So for one thing, just, just think of this. Christians, even Orthodox biblical Christians, were at the center of this civilizational project and are now increasingly being pushed out into the periphery. And, and you see issues like uh, the LGBTQ revolution, and especially right now where we've reached the, the, the gender issue, the transgender claim. You know, if 
if you can buy that claim, you've got to disregard virtually every single doctrine of Christianity. And, and you know, I will say this, this is where, you know, if a Catholic were to enter the room, the Roman Catholic in the room and said, told you, eventually it gets to ontology. And, uh, and by the way, I think that's where Luther and Calvin would both say, hey, we were there already, creation order. If you can deny that a boy's a boy and say a boy's a girl, we are way past arguing over the hypostatic union. Before he passed away, Pastor Harry Reader published an article in which he suggested that the Christianity and liberalism conflict of Machen's Day has become one of Christianity and progressivism today. Can you see hallmarks of today's progressivism that share the DNA of former liberalism? Yeah, the liberationist theme is the most important issue there. And, you know, Harry was a dear friend, and I miss him greatly. And I'm glad I was able to write a tribute to him. He and I had a lot of conversations about these issues over the years. Uh, the, 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 the liberalism or modernism that, uh, that Machen was addressing, those were words. And by the way, many of those words were, were used by the people themselves who were the proponents. They really were calling for Christianity to be entirely adjusted to this modern reality. They were really seeking to liberate Christianity from this incrustation of doctrine. Think of you know Adolf von Harnack and others. We got this is the modern age. You got to get rid of this procrustean bed of doctrine. And you know th that's just fast forwarded to where we are now. That's that's the logic of progressivism. And by the way, that's an old word, especially you know early twentieth century politics in the United States. Progressivism was the idea. And by the way, it's, while I'm talking to theologically minded people, let me just say this is why the left is given to so much Hegelianism. You know, this is the unfolding process of history. Progress is where society's inevitably going. If you stand in the way, you'll be bulldozed over by this Hegelian, you know, progressivism. Uh, and 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 so yeah, you see this right now. You see the the same the same thing is going on. And and I'm not going to argue with Harry. I'm simply going to say it goes by a lot of names. Liberalism, modernism, progressivism, identity politics. You just go down the list. Wokeism, and you know that's increasingly used by the right to describe the left. But the left invented the word woke. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not really happy it did so now. But nonetheless, the whole idea is enlightenment. That's just a, you know, a, 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 an urban slang for uh, enlightenment woke, awakened. The idea is that conservatives are in the dark, liberals are in the light, and uh, so the dynamic is exactly the same. And, and, and by the way, that is new, but it's new in the sense of the modern age. So you take the enlightenment, and yeah, this is, this is the constant thing, that those who claim to uh, be liberated by intellectual enlightenment through autonomous reason, I'm sounding like Francis Schaeffer here, for good reason. Uh, those who who, th who think that the entire project of humanity is to be liberated by autonomous reason versus those who say, no, we are accountable to truth. And you can come up with different labels, liberal, conservative, uh, orthodox, uh, unorthodox, progressive, uh, modernist, uh, but uh, that's basically where we are. One of Machen's most effective critiques of liberalism was that it inverted the priorities of the church. I asked Dr. Muller about where we see Christ's message of salvation subordinated to cultural relevance today. When we're thinking about the church and all of these isms, we think of liberalism, modernism, uh, even wokeism, it seems to seep into the church. Now, one of Machen's most effective 
critiques of liberalism was that it inverted the priorities of the church and that salvation would become subordinate to cultural relevance. Do you see this inversion in the church today? And if so, how can pastors avoid this common approach to ministry? Yeah, this is one of the hard things to discuss honestly in the larger evangelical movement. The the syndrome that Machen identified was the people who said, look, we are in a new situation, deal with it. As if dealing with it meant you've got to fundamentally rethink how you conceptualize Christianity and certainly how you present it. Well, I'm old enough to remember that that was the logic that happened in evangelicalism in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s when you had the pragmatism that came in with kind of the ad agency evangelicalism, you know, where we we can put a happier face on this. You know, that crashed with the the, the sexual revolution and the claims of identity politics. Uh, and and so you still have an awful lot of people who say, look, we're in a changed situation. We gotta we gotta talk differently. We've got we've got to find a new vocabulary. We've got to repackage it all. And you know, this is this is just perpetual. You remember, you know, 10 years ago, people were talking about the emergent church, you know, as if we're just gonna rethink this whole thing. And um, that's a, a, absolutely one of those arrogant uh, assumptions, by the way, a Christian can make. The Bible actually off, you know, argues exactly the opposite. The apostles say exactly the opposite. Now, you're credited with coining the term theological triage. In what way should we deploy that concept in 2023? Have the cultural battles of today altered the hierarchy of theological triage? For example, uh, is something like justification by faith alone as important as it was a decade ago, when our political divisions seem much more urgent? Well, it has to be. It has to be. Uh, but when you're talking about identifying Christianity, this is a tough thing. This is a tough thing. It was tough for the Reformers, and the Reformers weren't always absolutely consistent on this. In other words, what what is the true church? Where do you find the true church? And uh, I, I'm going to lean into Luther here. I, I'm going to say that justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. Um but at other times, Machen will have to come back and say, well, you know, Trinitarian affirmation and even the uh, the, 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 the norm of propositional doctrine uh, and, 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 and even, uh, you know, the, the uh, outworkings of, uh, uh, of the certain framework of Christian orthodoxy, you know, uh, Rome has not repudiated all of that. Now, Rome did repudiate a lot at Trent. And so that, that's where I want to put justification by faith as a first order doctrine. Uh, uh, but but the second order issues are operating right now. I mean, I'm talking to a Presbyterian, you know, uh, institution in this program. And uh, I, I speak uh, to you as brothers in Christ without the slightest hesitation. You're not members of the church of which I'm a member. Uh, that's, a, that's a second order issue in terms of how we understand church government, even something like baptism. We disagree. But uh, but that but we don't disagree in questioning one another's commitment to Christ or hold upon historic Christianity, and and we don't believe that we're both right uh, because of the the principle we we don't hold to an epistemology of of confusion here. One, one day we're all going to know uh, clearly. We'll see no longer through a glass darkly. There are also issues in which you know the third order you can have disagreement without threatening the fellowship even of a local church. And I would put you know a lot of 
I won't say eschatological truth. I say eschatological speculation and things like that there. Or the the other is when I teach systematic theology, I say the doctrine of the origin of the soul. Uh, you know, I don't know of a single denomination that has actually taken a stance on that. Mm-hmm. And probably for, for very good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you know, I, I, I want to answer your question uh, directly. In other words, have these things changed? And I would say no, uh, they haven't. But this is where Machen's so helpful, because if you get to those first-order doctrines, where s- someone is outside of the of the, the necessary consensus on first-order issues, we do not recognize them as Christians. And so, you know, I, I tell students, look here, I'm, we're in Louisville, Kentucky. You can drive out the main entrance to the seminary, turn left and turn right, and you're going to face all these churches, but we don't believe a lot of them are Christian. We believe that some of their religion. Uh, in terms of the mainline Protestant liberalism that you can just see driving down the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't think that situation has changed. As we learned in a previous episode, one of the events that precipitated the crisis of liberalism at Princeton Seminary was the death of J. Gresson Machen's mentor, B.B. Warfield. Warfield was one of the towering theological figures of the 19th century, and when he died, the future of the church felt less certain. We're in a similar place today. Even as we recorded this podcast, the church lost leaders like Harry Reeder, Tim Keller, Stephen Smallman, and Donald McLeod. Whenever one generation passes the baton to the next, the future can feel really uncertain. I asked Dr. Muller about this and what advice he'd give to the next generation of leaders in the church. You've led Southern Baptist Theological Seminary through dramatic change for 30 years. As we come to grips with losing a generation of biblical leaders like Harry Reeder and Tim Keller and others, what leadership advice can you give to young men that the Lord may be raising up to lead the next generation of his church? Uh, To young men, I would say, find orthodox heroes and hang around them. Learn from them. Listen to them. Try to figure out how they think. Learn from them. Uh, every single Christian leader is imperfect, but we all need what uh, Elton Trueblood called uh, perpetual visions of, of greatness. We have to aspire to something. And uh, I'll say to those who are around me, I am happy when you aspire to do better. And uh, so I, w- I would say to younger men, find models you want to hang around, read everything they write, you know, listen to everything you can hear. And then spend as much time because the personal time is just so important. Insofar as you can be with someone, take advantage of that. And to older men in particular, I would say, invest in younger men or you're a fool. I mean, unless all you want is to fill as much as you can between the parentheses of your years, then you better invest in younger men in the church or all you are doing is is going to be for naught. That's a scary thing, isn't it? I mean, Moses to Joshua. I mean, at some point we got to die and leave it in younger hands. Um, so knowing that, we better be investing in those younger hearts. For listeners who might be new to the book, Christianity and Liberalism, or new to this framework of looking at the faith, what singular lesson from the book would you accentuate for them? Call the thing what it is. Call the thing what it is. Don't say this is more conservative and that's more liberal Christianity. Say 
what it is. This is Christianity. That is a new religion. Hmm. And what kind of spiritual effect would you expect to see in students and pastors and congregations that do that, to return to the confessions or to a commitment to the ancient faith? I am old enough to tell you that I know I am incapable of holding myself, first of all, to Christ, or holding myself to orthodoxy, simply because I understand how temporal I am and and how you know fragile I am made of dust. And you know, for that matter, I have to sleep. And so uh I I I would say you, you've got to have the security that you are in what holds you and that you are in what holds you because of who holds you. And so I would simply say to to younger Christians in particular, find your home in these confessions, because those confessions articulate the faith when you might not know how or have the strength to. Forgive me, I'm digressing here, but Elizabeth Elliot, I heard give her testimony one time, and she said she got through the night, the night, the long night when her husband and the others were missing, and she she knew in her heart they were dead. She said she got through the night uh, when she couldn't order her mind to pray other than God help. She said, my only ordering was the words of hymns that I would just play in my mind and sing in my mind over and over again. The confession of faith ought to be like a hymn. At times, when we cannot even think for ourselves, uh, the right words and sentences still stay in our minds. I think that's really, really important. That's so helpful. Thank you, Dr. Muller. And thank you for all that you've done for the sake of the church, for the seminary. As you have death in yourself, it surely has produced life in others. So thank you for that and for your time today. Very kind. This is a delightful conversation, and I'm always glad to, to speak with friends from Westminster Theological Seminary, because though the history of Princeton and Westminster uh, was a great gift to me in understanding my stewardship here at Southern Seminary. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. This episode of Christianity and Liberalism was brought to you by Westminster Seminary Press. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Al Muller. Westminster Seminary Press has published a brand new edition of the book this show is based on, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. This 100th anniversary edition features a new forward by Kevin DeYoung and is available to order now at wtsbooks.com. Listeners to this podcast can get a free download of the Christianity and Liberalism audiobook at checkout when you enter the promo code MACHEN23. That's M-A-C-H-E-N 23. This podcast was based on the book Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gressa Machen and hosted by David Brionis. This episode was produced by Josh Curry and Jimmy Atkins. Audio captured by Paul Quorum, edited and engineered by Will Bablitz. Our theme song was written by Timothy Brindle and produced by Nobody Special. Thanks for listening.
Nature wrote Christianity and liberalism To demonstrate the two completely different religions Liberalism denies man's wicked condition And divine inspiration with which scripture was written Us Christians are convinced scripture's truly factual But liberalism denies the supernatural Matron's book definitely showed Christianity and liberalism are diametrically opposed It's not a different version of Christianity It has opposite views of God and humanity Often disguised with Christian terminology they baptize the serpents absurd philosophy. So when we call you a liberal, it's not just political But rejecting his virgin birth and all of his miracles From trusting in science But against God, it's disgusting defiance Self is your trust and reliance The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Machen press men to be honest Don't call it Christian if it essentially is godless Christianity's based on events God accomplished Christ was sent to bring redemption he promised Not just an ethical leader, respectable teacher But God in the flesh, yes our blessed redeemer An affront to human pride You can only be saved by faith in Christ who was crucified Amen. Our greatest needs to be redeemed by the Son It's not what we're Jesus do but what Jesus has done since we're slaves to doubt pride and lust we're in desperate need of rescue that's outside of us an understatement to say that we're flawed in need of what Machen called a creative act of God because we're torn by sin we've been abhorring him not just sick but dead we must be born again God's enemies his arrogant opponents who can only be saved by vicarious atonement judgment fell on Christ in my place unrighteous guilty sinners are only righteous by grace scriptures historical Acts they assert in Jesus the God man the supernatural person We need new hearts he's the compassionate surgeon By his death and resurrection he's smashing the serpent The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis the lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be from my intention is to show when I'll mention in this flow Machen's words are as useful as a century ago Liberalism breeds destruction, it's hopeless Today it's deconstruction and wokeness Rooted in paganism, atheism Like Satan's mission to make CRT state religion These abominations we see to this day In denominations like the PC USA Why embrace Machen's great wisdom? In light of the claims of his racism In 1913 Machen wrote mom complaining Angry about Princeton's campus integration I can't believe the decision of Warfield But this cancer of heart I'm sure the Lord healed See Warfield became Machen's mentor An instrument for Machen to repent more Showing his need of the savior to change him But consider the Lord's grace of sanctification Machen became friends with an African American Named Charlie Machen gladly had cherished him as a matter of fact, Charlie had a cataract Skin killer didn't matter as Machen had his back, paid for the operation stayed with him in the hospital, Christ changing Machen, not an impossible obstacle from his love for his friend Charlie, it's quite clear Christ was changing Machen partly, any bigotry left, it's not there any longer perfected now in the presence of his father, the line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man upon the rock of the word of God we will stand we bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrists, it's still the only 
the answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell oh.